Hello, and welcome to the All Things Narrative podcast, where we explore the relationships between the stories we love and the stories we live. I'm your host, Derek Hatch, and let's get started. All right, we're back at the top of the month of July, and it is so good to be here with you all. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And I'm excited because I have someone very, very, very special on uh, all the way from the other side of the world that I get to bring on here. And so we are going to be interviewing the one and only David Denborough himself today. I'm just so excited that you are here for this. Um, before we get started, just a reminder that at All Things Narrative, if you want to get more connected with us, you can like us on you know, social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, all that good stuff. We're there. You can check out our website, allthingsnarrative.com. And yeah, feel free to reach out, say hi, send an email, connect, leave a review. It's just, it's, it's been so encouraging to hear from some of you and I'm glad that you're enjoying this podcast and uh, yeah, it's just uh, good to be doing this and to be bringing narrative practices out to a lot of people who have told me that they don't really know what narrative practices is and they're learning through this podcast, which is really cool. So uh, I'm excited about that and thank you for, for tuning in. So who I have on here today is somebody who is largely responsible for bringing narrative practices uh, out into what we know it to be as today. And he's done that through a lot of ways. So David Denborough works as a community worker, teacher, and writer editor for the Dulwich Center, which is located in Adelaide, Australia. He's particularly interested in cross-cultural partnerships, which limit the chances of psychological colonization and create possibilities for cross-cultural inventions, such as the team of life narrative approach and the tree of life. These collective narrative methodologies seek to assist people to address the effects of traumatic experiences without having to speak directly about them. David is also vitally interested in how collective narrative practices can spark and or sustain social movement and in projects that respond to racism and seek to strengthen social cohesion slash inclusion. Recent teaching and community assignments all around the world, including Brazil, Palestine, Singapore, Austria, Hong Kong, Iraq, India, Canada, Sri Lanka, Argentina, Chile, South Africa, a number of Aboriginal Australian communities, and pretty soon uh, Rwanda, the host of the uh, uh, 2022 Narrative Therapy and Narrative Practices Conference. And he's also the coordinator of the Masters of Narrative Therapy and Community with the University of Melbourne, which is where I met him as David uh, helped supervise us uh, in the graduate program uh, with our innovation projects and beyond. So it is my pleasure to introduce to you all today here on the All Things Narrative Podcast, David Denborough. Welcome. Hi, Derek. Your enthusiasm is just delightful, and I feel energized all the way over here on what is a cold Adelaide morning, but somehow <laughs> I've been warmed. I've been warmed by yeah. your uh, your podcast already. So very, very nice to be here with you. Oh, well, thanks. You know, some of these sessions during the master's program, it was nine, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night over here on the East coast. And you had just a way of keeping us going, you know, like you're just the way that you, you teach. It's just so it's interactive, but it's also like, there's a narrative, like a storytelling dimension to it, you know, um, just as you're, you draw, you drew us into those, those moments of teaching in the way that you would uh, challenge us to practice as well. So glad I well, could I reciprocate really, that. Well, I think it was reciprocated during that program too. Cause one of the things I, I love about, um, uh, the masters and and all the different training programs we try to be involved in is that the participants are coming not just to you know learn about what narrative practice already is but mm. to contribute to expanding it so you and all the other folks in your year as you were doing your innovation projects mm. that was really enlivening for us because you know people taking these ideas and yes there's a 
long history now of a, you know, a lot of different engagements and the field that already exists, but so exciting to see what people do with them and in the collaborations in all these different contexts and you and everybody in your year, um, yeah, keep expanding this, this field, keep finding ways to respond to different social sufferings in different contexts. And yeah, that does require a bit of energy, a bit of innovation and lots of partnerships. Yeah. And, and that's what was really cool about that program is that encouraging of innovation and, you know, with 60 or so people in the program, no, nobody had the same project. Like everybody was doing something different that related to their own context and practice. And so it's cool to like get to see what people are doing around the world with narrative practices. And uh, I'm sure, you know, by your experience, you've seen a lot of things. And what I'm kind of curious though about to, to start is how did you get into this world? Where did your love and your passion uh, and your innovation, you know, for uh, all things in narrative practice, where did that start? Well, Derek, we have to go way back in time uh, <laughs> to think about that, back to the early 90s. Um, so, yeah, but it's a bit of a tale, and it's quite nice thinking back to them because they were times where I was just really, really stretched and really searching too, I guess. As a, as a young guy, I'd, um, I'd finished school and by the time I had, I was really pretty disillusioned um, with mainstream dominant Australian culture, white Australian culture, but also masculine culture. Mm. And I just, um, I was, yeah, pretty despondent in some ways. I, I you know, I had many really great experiences in at school. I know you work within schools and alternative schools. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd been good at the things you were meant to be good at. Um, so I'd been, you know, successful at dominant culture mm -hmm. and dominant masculine culture. But by the time I finished school, I was feeling just bereft about what that sort of trajectory meant. Also, in terms of a middle class white masculinity in Australia, it's right. pretty um, it's pretty fraught. Let's put it that way. Yeah. What, and um, what were you studying at the time? Well, I finished school and I didn't know what to study. Okay. So, I, and I, in fact, I was really just thinking about being a musician. So I took a year off and. Yeah, and I found a real solace and meaning and different company in worlds of music. Mm -hmm. And But I'd also grown up in a household that had shown during the Cold War because things were pretty terrifying back then in terms of the mm -hmm. possibilities of nu nuclear war. Mm -hmm. And both my parents had, had not just faced the horrors of that possibility, but they really took action. So they both fantastic people and they'd formed a, what started as a grassroots um, uh, movement. And at those days, the peace movement and the anti-nuclear movement was absolutely thriving. Hundreds of thousands of people at marches and mm -hmm. they'd then formed a, a political party called the Nuclear Disarmament Party to try and bring, bring changes in Australia. So I'd, at the same time as this disillusionment with dominant culture, I did have this, you know, I'd seen the possibilities of people trying to come together and, and take action. So I guess yeah. I was just searching, yeah, searching for all those realms. And eventually I um, ended up just, I remember the day actually, what was one of the turning points before I knew anything about narrative practice, but it made it all possible really, mm -hmm. was um, I was just trying to read everything I could about, um, you know, gender and masculinity. And I just came across the early, some of the early women's liberation writers, including mm -hmm. Jermaine Greer here in Australia, and their styles of writing, which were so personal but political and engaged and naming, you know, the desolation of dominant culture but being on fire trying to change it. There was something about their writings that just strangely, even though my you know context was very different, but their writings about gender just 
made so much sense. So was that really that then made me think, okay, well, try to take some action in these realms. What would that look like? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, joined with others to try and do something about men's violence and also by a circuitous route uh, ended up working in prisons. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, it's a long answer to your question, but I was really, I wasn't looking to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. I was studying social work. Um, that then meant that I could um, try and explore these different realms. And um, by the time I was um, then trying to work with young men and work in prisons, and I was just reading everything I could about masculinity. Mm -hmm. And then I remember the day there was a welfare worker in the prison. Her name was um, uh, Charlene. I can't remember her second name. Mm -hmm. But she passed me this newsletter mm -hmm. from Dulwich Centre. Mm -hmm. It was a Dulwich Centre newsletter on men's ways of being. And um, I read it and I realised it was the only thing I'd ever read that was put together by men and women working together in relation to a gender partnership, cross-genders mm -hmm. partnership. And it was just so exciting. It, the enthusiasm you had in your voice at the beginning of this podcast, I had throughout my being when I read this uh, newsletter. It was yes. like, oh, my goodness, I've been reading things everywhere else. And this was just invigorating in terms of both the content and the possibilities of partnership that yeah. it represented. That's like how I felt um, when I read uh, the very first book I read on narrative practices was actually your book, uh, Retelling the Stories of Our Lives. And when I opened um, to chapter one, and I want to read this quote because um, I don't think I've shared this yet on the podcast, and it's just a phenomenal quote. Um, and you wrote in here, who we are and what we do are influenced by the stories that we tell about ourselves. While we can't always change the stories that others have about us, we can influence the stories we tell about ourselves and those we care about. And we can, with care, rework or rewrite storylines of identity. When I read that, I was like, okay, I found my place. Like I found the type of the, the literature, the reading that I need for my life. So in regards to like that quote, um, how did you, as you began to read from the Dulwich Center, as you were reading these writings about uh, masculinity that were um, informed by by men and women that were in collaboration, and as you were learning more about these narrative ideas and and that framework of of rewriting storylines of identity, what did that look like uh, in your work in the prisons? Well, the first things that was happening in the prisons, I was just learning so much. I was so out of my depth. I mean, I come from this middle-class white family, mm -hmm. a very loving family, mm -hmm. and was suddenly being introduced and taught about a whole different side of this country, this continent that I uh, lived on. It was um, I just had a chance to have the most uh, honest conversations that I'd had about a whole lot of things with the men who were in prison there. And it was like my um, a really vibrant but challenging um, education. It was different, a different university. Um, and there were so many moments that took place. Some of them I remember there was a, a young Aboriginal man about the same age as me at the time. His name was Todd. And he was the first person to tell me, you know, that in his uh, worldview, I was a, a gubber. You know, I was a white, a white fella. Um, and I, suddenly I was trying to think, okay, well, wait a minute. I need to be understanding my life in terms of being a white, uh, white fella. What does that mean? What is becoming a gubber or becoming white fella from his terminology, seeing my life through his eyes? Yeah. Um, and then there was... Um, I also then, while I was there, started to realise how many of the men had been through boys' homes and had been through juvenile justice. And while they didn't talk openly about it, 
there was just acknowledgement between us that sexual violence, mm. um, rape and assault had been such a part of their lives as kids and as young people and just complete cultural silence about it, but how pervasive this was and um, trying to think about what that meant in terms of, you know, my understanding of the country. And, right. and same in terms of class. You know, I'd never... I was in the first, there was a, I'd been asked by these men who were all doing serious time mm -hmm. if we could organise something that would support them to then work with young men back in their communities when they got out. Mm -hmm. That was what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And there was no course or training that we had in the prison that they thought could assist them. So they asked, you know, can you create something? So it was such a fantastic invitation. I was like, well, yeah, that's we've got to try and do that. So, you know, this was the first course that I was a part of trying to um, create with them, and it was going to be like a welfare course, but we had to obviously do it completely differently because no existing course actually was resonant. Mm. So um, we eventually, you know, come in with a, a particular topic. It was like sociology in some ways how how had say issues of class affected their lives and how it affected my life and how different was that and then we just talk about that or, yeah. or about race or about uh sexuality we'd have these conversations and then they were just incredibly interesting and challenging and one guy i remember saying to me um well, actually, I think I posed the question first. I said, I think I said, um, look, when I was growing, you know, in, in high school, um, I would have called you Westies, which was like the term for people from working class backgrounds in the west of Sydney. Mm -hmm. And I said, I would have thought you were, you know, stupid and um, potentially violent. And um, what would you have called me? So uh, they said a squarehead. And I'd never heard the term squarehead. I knew the term Westie, but I'd never heard the term squarehead. So I said, oh, what, what, and what would you mean by that? And they said, oh, stuck off poof of can't fuck. Uh, so, so I don't know if you've got a language warning on your podcast, Derek, but anyway. <laughs> it's okay. And, and um, it was like, oh, okay. And it wasn't a, these conversations, they weren't, um, you know, it wasn't a chance for time for me to be offended or a time for this. It was actually an invitation to partnership. We were yeah. actually talking honestly across these differences and I was getting an education about, yeah, okay, what does it mean to be a squarehead? Mm -hmm. I hadn't, in all my earlier training, I hadn't learned about what it meant to be a gubber <laughs> or what it meant to be a squarehead. And here I was, I was learning about this and um, they were fantastic conversations and in terms of what this meant, in terms of narrative practice, which was your question, um, before before you before sorry, you say yeah. that, um, just it's just so important just to to acknowledge here that you know a lot of people in this situation tend to just come in and be like, okay, I know exactly what these people need, so I'm gonna just you know give it to them and do it. But I feel like what, what you're really exemplifying here is you took time to listen to them. You took time to understand, to enter into their world. And, and you had said earlier, like, to see you from their eyes and to take their, like, the ideas that they had for, you know, wanting to create a group where when they got out, they could go and talk to the young men in their community um, and being able to acknowledge and, and do that. I mean... It sounds like there was a there was a sense of agency that maybe they were experiencing when they were with you that they could talk freely and openly about these things where maybe maybe they hadn't always had that opportunity before. Well, I mean, I was twenty three and from a white middle class background, never been in prison, never been in juvenile justice, never been in children's homes. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but I guess I did at least know that I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, there was, there was, like, when you were saying that if I could bring what would be, you know, to, to tell these guys what to do, the one is, the one thing is they wouldn't have done it. They would have just re resisted. Yeah. And the other thing was I did recognise that even in the moments of, you know, if people were telling me to 
been pretty direct with me that I was doing something incorrect. It was a chance to learn something and we could, we could be in it together. So yeah. it, there was a generosity from those men wow. um, that was, that was uh, significant to me. And, but the other thing was it just became so clear that yeah, what they wanted to do was to offer something back to the young, particularly the young men, in their communities to prevent them from living the same sorts of lives that they'd lived and doing the same sort of harm that they'd done to others. And in terms of where narrative practice fitted in, I suddenly realised that, you know, I they didn't have freedom of movement, but I actually was going into the schools where the young men that they wanted to have an influence with uh, yeah. were because I was doing that as part of this other group that I'd formed to try and meet with young men to prevent prevent violence. Mm-hmm. And so years later, in terms of collective narrative practice, and I now talk about you know enabling people to speak through me, not just to me, this was really where I learned that because I realised that these men, I could say, well, look, I know you want to offer something back to these young men and try and see if there's some way to avoid the harm that's been done, including the harm that these guys had done. And um, I'm actually going into this high school next week. Is you know, do you want to send some sort of message to them? Yeah. And and that just made things possible. So we could talk about. Um, I could interview them. I don't know how we got permission, but we got permission to make little videos mm-hmm. uh, back then. And I could interview them about masculinity, about sort of ways of being a man that they'd been invited, recruited, then stepped into. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember one of them said, you know, those, those ways of being a man, they were like a scholarship to nowhere. Mm. Wow. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I've been reading everything I could about, you know, gender and masculinity, but actually this was the best description I'd um, I'd ever heard, a scholarship to nowhere for these young men, many affected by poverty and by uh, racism. Yeah. And then they'd step into these dominant ways of being men and they said, you know, it took us, we started doing this, then we took this step, and then it was like we stepped right into these ways of being men that have ended, ended up us doing harm to others. Yeah. Um, ending up ending up in prison, and we don't want these other young men to take this scholarship to nowhere. Don't take this scholarship to nowhere. So anyway, I could film that with their permission, mm-hmm. and then go into the go into the schools and use this as a bit of a spark, bit of a starting point to um, deconstruct masculinity, really, and. Um, and try and explore and support alternative ways of ways of being. So that was, and they, they were the first projects really where I was um, trying to use narrative practices and learning an enormous amount uh, along the way from both uh, both the guys in the prison and the and the young folks in the schools. So when you went to the schools and you brought these videos to the students, what were their um, responses? Well, you would know more than most, Derek. But sometimes when you're meeting, you know, high schools, and <laughs> I was always asked to, I was always asked to go out to the, you know, schools that were in strife, and then the particular classes where there'd been a lot of trouble, and it's often year nine boys, young men that I was being asked to meet with, mm-hmm. and you know, it's somewhat chaotic, which I enjoy. Chaos going on in the room, even getting people's attention can be a uh, bit of a struggle but it made a difference when I could say look I've just been at uh, Long Bay prison this week and the men there wanted to send you a message in fact they've made this message for you um, would you be interested in hear- in hearing that mm. and so I realized again it wasn't me that people wanted to talk to necessarily um, even if we did have good conversations they mm. but they did want to have a, a chance to contribute to or be linked with um, um, others who might have been through similar lives that, that they had been. So, that, you know, the, the group, there'd be silence. Suddenly there'd be this different sort of silence in the room and I'd be able to share this piece and then I could ask them, you know, well, what do you want to say back to these mm. guys who just who just sent you this message? And they, the men in the prison particularly wanted to hear, were there ways that the young men were resisting this scholarship? 
were they? They wanted to hear about you know ways that they were trying to be different sorts of um, men. Often the young guys would talk about being yourself rather than being a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was their sort of terminology. So I could ask them questions about well, you know, how are you doing this, um, and what are what are the effects of the you know um, being tough or being cool, which were the other words back then. What were the effects of those on your life, on your relationships with your sisters and the relationships with the girls in school? And we could have all these conversations and I could um, take some notes yeah. and write, write up some message to send back to the men in the prison. And, um, yeah, I was like a, like a go-between in some ways. I was using narrative practice skills in my questions, in rescuing the words, mm-hmm. but it was all in service of... Um, trying to facilitate links between people who all wanted to make some changes to some broader social issue, which I did too. In this case, that broader social issue was was about dominant masculinity and the harm that it does to women, kids, and to and to men. So that was um, I just learned a lot in there that has. Um, continue to shape my interest in narrative practice because yeah I'm not a not a therapist um, not a counselor but wanting to find ways to address different social issues and find ways to bring people together to to be able to do that and yeah the, the that context that context in the prison and in the in the schools was like a crucible a crucible of learning for me. listen to this podcast uh, that are narrative practitioners or interested in narrative practices. Um, But there's also people that uh, don't know a lot of these words and concepts. So um, I heard you mentioning collective narrative practices earlier. So could you tell us a little bit more about what those are? Sure. Well, narrative therapy as a field forever has never really separated the therapy from community work. Mm-hmm. So um, Michael White was also involved in community projects uh, as well as uh, being a family therapist, a, a narrative therapist uh, in the in the counselling room. So there's always been this really real interest in how can learnings from one realm influence the other. Yeah. Um, and if we're really looking at how broader issues are affecting lives in the therapy room, are there also ways of trying to uh, respond to them more broadly? Mm -hmm. So collective narrative practice, it just takes that a bit further. So in in externalizing conversations, we say that the person's uh, not the problem. The problem is the problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just also think in collective narrative practice, well, person's not the problem. The problem is the problem. And the solution is not only personal. So we're trying to think, you know, if people, whether it's in therapy, whether it's in schools, whether it's in prisons, they're actually really not just representing themselves, not just representing personal experience. They're also representing social issues, social problems, yeah. uh, social injustices. Yeah. So um, that means that I think... We've got a responsibility as practitioners, not just to be working in the realm of personal experience, but also thinking how can we contribute to um, addressing uh, social issues, not mm-hmm. just replicating the status quo, but trying to um, influence some of these broader social harms. And yeah, it's a big topic because there's you know quite a critique of therapy and counselling. Um, and psychology and social work um, over many decades saying that sometimes all these professions can actually personalise or, you know, look for personal solutions to what are political and social problems. Yeah. And um, so collective narrative practice is trying to sit right in the middle of that dilemma, that critique and think, okay, so if we're receiving stories of social suffering, social injustice, um, people are coming to us to try to 
transform their personal experience of those. Mm -hmm. So we do want to do that. Mm -hmm. But actually, maybe that's not enough. Maybe we also need to be trying to think how we can at least not get in the way of broader social change, but hopefully also try to contribute to it in some way. So that's where the field of collective narrative practice uh, comes in. It's got quite a long history and it's it's also got to do with you know how can we make make our work most relevant to the most marginalized sort of that ethic so lots of context people aren't going to be going to counseling aren't going to be um, seeking a therapist or aren't going to be able to afford to or right. are in cultures are in mm-hmm. cultures where that's not a resonant idea mm-hmm. so actually our job as narrative practitioners again, often through partnerships to think about, okay, well, how do we need to transform our practices, create ways of working that we will be relevant to the most marginalised and that can try to respond to and try to create some sense of social movement, not grand social movement, but some yeah. sort of social movement in relation to these social issues. So that's, that's the sort of place that collective narrative practice fits in. And um, the story I gave before about finding ways for folks in prison, young men, mm-hmm. shaped by gender partnerships, shaped by the influence of feminist women, um, and in conversation with feminist women, with whom I was at the time, but trying to try to contribute to creating some different possibilities in relation to dominant masculinity and addressing issues of gender injustice so yeah that's sort of where that where that fits in yeah and we have to be a bit creative we have to come up with whatever will work in a particular context and that's something that you talk about um in you know you have a book called collective narrative practice and uh, it's a fantastic book uh, for those of you out there who haven't read it and one of the things that you bring up in that book is this idea of folk culture so um, could you maybe talk a little bit more about what folk culture, how that uh, plays into collective narr- narrative practice and the kind of creative ways that you find to engage a group of people who maybe don't want or don't have access to traditional modes of therapy and counseling? Sure, sure. Well, um, there are a couple of different ways that, that that can work, but we're really trying to find whoever we're working with yeah, maybe talking directly about their lives in the first person, which you're sort of expected to do in sort of therapy or counselling. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's going to be the last thing they want to going to be wanting to be doing. That's right, lots right. of the contexts I work in. That's mm-hmm. not really a very good fit. So, but there might be some aspect of local life for them that they do find sustenance in, or they do find easy to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I'm just interested in looking for those moments those elements of local culture so in prisons talking in the first person about your life is often not a great idea because it can make you more vulnerable mm. um and so you know if you spend a lot of time in institutions then you spend a lot of time learning how not to speak in the first person about your life so yeah but uh songs are um you know a treasured aspect of pr- prison resistance culture so yeah. in in the prisons in the prisons we hold group discussions be my job to with permission take a few notes and do what we call rescuing people's words not rescuing the person but the pe- person says something that's really uh, significant to try and make sure those words can have a longer life mm-hmm. so and in my experience, you know, when we're meeting with people, often I'll say a phrase that could easily be a lyric, could easily be transformed into the song. So um, within the prisons way back um, then, that was also my job to try and create some songs with with the folks I was working with. And, yeah. Um, uh, there was one with transgender folks in the prison that, was one of the first songs of this kind that um, we created together. It's called A Song of Survival. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And there was another song I remember writing from the words of a man who was HIV positive and knew he was going to die behind prison walls mm. and what different meanings that brought brought to life. So this was a, a way of then, you know, working with mm-hmm. an aspect of folk culture, in this case songs, mm-hmm. um, honouring people's words and insider know-how and then in some small way creating art, yeah. uh, recording it, and then it could be played, played through the cell blocks. Um, it's just that's sort of one realm of engaging with local folk culture. Yeah. Um, so when you would, so, so you would talk to somebody about their life and you would rescue their words, you would try to accurately write down their words, and then would you take those words and create a song out of them? Yeah. Yeah, I would. And then I'd bring back the draft, bring back the draft version and play it and see if people liked it. And if they did, if they wanted to be part of the recording uh, or if they wanted me to just record it, they want it just for them or if they wanted it shared with others. And yeah, yeah sometimes they wanted these broadcast. Um, Was there a particular time, like a particular interaction that you can recall that was really maybe particularly meaningful or special to you or memorable in, in any way? Well, because we're talking about those times, I mean, there have been lots over the years, but because we're thinking about those prison times when it was the song of the transgender folks who wanted their song of survival played um, played in the prison, there was one time when we could do this. They didn't want to actually perform it, mm-hmm. but they wanted, I was part of a band at the time, and they wanted our band to come in and play it on World AIDS Day. Wow. So we got permission to do that and we cranked cranked it up to 12 um, and played song of song of survival and introduced it um, and what it what it meant. And these folks, I don't know what it's like these days in the US, but um, transgender folks in prisons are not only vastly overrepresented, of course, First Nations folks in Australia are vastly overrepresented and um experience mass incarceration of the sort of scale that happens in your country mm-hmm. and transgender folks also um, vastly overrepresented and endure indescribable experiences, really, some of these folks have been through. But the song that they wanted sung was also acknowledging that, but it was also acknowledging that um, this was a song of survival. They had... Um, Endured. So when this was broadcast to the whole whole prison, when we performed this, and then yeah, it didn't it didn't stop uh, the continuing injustices they were experiencing, but it did um, it did broadcast a different a different storyline, a different sense, and um, so yeah, that was that was certainly one time that although it was many years ago, I still I still remember it. Yeah. And did you continue having conversations with them, you know, even after your band played that song uh, in the prison? Uh, yeah, it was an unusual time because there were a number of transgender folks in that prison at one time, and then they often would get get dispersed. So it didn't it didn't that sense of uh, communitas or solidarity didn't necessarily last for last for so long. But mm. um, yeah, we produced a. A, a book called uh, as well called Treat Us Like Queens actually that came out um, that was then shared uh, around the prison too. But I stopped working in prisons after um, it was only about three and a half years that I was there. I had my own sort of personal crisis and left Sydney and um, eventually um, via Canberra moved down to Adelaide to work at Dulwich Centre where I still do now. So it was... It was just a just a moment in time, really. But the idea of um, engaging with folk culture that's really continued. And songs is just one element. You know, yeah. whoever's whoever's listening here, you might not be so engaged in music, but there might be some aspect, other aspect of um, folk cultural life that you're engaged with. And um, I used to think that I'd have to choose between being a musician or being a social worker or working, you know, with issues of injustice. And I just realized you don't have to, to 
they're false distinctions. We can, wow. we can bring them together. Yeah. So certainly my life's been more uh, meaningful for being able to bring them together. Um, there's another aspect of folk culture, though, that I should just mention, because sometimes it's also, with, you know, you mentioned earlier that the tree of life approach, which yeah. was developed with with Nazareth and Kube Malilo uh, at her invitation mm-hmm. um, in Zimbabwe. We worked on that together to try and think what would be a relevant way of working for kids there in Zimbabwe um, who'd lost a great many loved ones due to HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. And again, they weren't going to want to talk about this directly. In fact, when they did, Zalo noticed that um, sometimes they'd have more nightmares or wet the bed more that night. So um, it was Nazalo's idea to try and think, well, we could combine something they were already doing, which was drawing trees and linking this to aspects of their identity, but we could combine that with narrative practices. So that's how the tree of life narrative approach came about. So it's like using a metaphor some aspect of local folk culture, in this case, trees and forests and storms and talking about our lives through that metaphor. And then similarly, the team of life uses football metaphors and the recipes of life uses cooking metaphors and the smartphone of life from Chris Say in Hong Kong talks <laughs> through smartphones and basically thinking what anything that the people we're working with that they're really interested in Mm-hmm. that they can have a long conversation about, well, maybe we can use that as the starting point for our practice. Maybe we can yeah. go where they're comfortable rather than getting them to talk where we're comfortable. Yeah, these various of life metaphors have been huge in teaching uh, when I when I teach uh, students. Um, I have a group of students that are musicians. Great. Soundtrack of life. I mean, everyone I know loves the soundtrack of life, even if you're not a musician. But, you know, tree of life, team of life, recipe of life. um, They're they're all journey of life. uh, Another favorite uh, that I do with people. Um, These are these are fantastic. And one of the things that I'm really like I've been wrestling with in the last couple months in particular. And this is kind of what you were making me think of when you're talking about leaving the prisons is how to, you know, because folk culture is something that like we're not necessarily bringing in, it's something that's already there. It's with the people, they're interested in it. Being able to cultivate a, a community that continues those things, even when like us, the narrative practitioners aren't present, you know, because I just uh, in the last few weeks, you know, as I'm recording this, um, I transitioned from the job that I've been in for the last seven years and so one of the things that's really been on my heart in the last you know few months as I knew this was coming was, okay, when I leave, you know, are you know my students who are still going to want to be doing drumming and music, are there going to be people there who are going to carry that, who are going to continue that? And trying to find ways as narrative practitioners to, um, we don't want a culture of people to like, be dependent on like, oh, this only happens if I'm there, you know, and if I'm there, if I'm not there, it doesn't happen. Trying to be like, no, listen, like, I don't have to be there. Um, This is something that you guys are more than capable of of doing and being leaders at and being able to empower people um, to to take the lead on that. So I think that's that's so important um, to be able to do, but it's something that maybe, maybe I know I'm guilty of not always thinking about in the moment when I'm with people. So, mm-hmm. um, no, I think that's, I think that's really crucial. And also it reminds me of a, a different aspect of collective narrative practice, which is it's in a paper called linking stories and initiatives, which was really trying to say that sometimes we would get invited. Um, as often I say, we, it was a team, Ali Barbara Wingard and Cheryl White and I often were the, were the nucleus of the team. And we've been invited to, try and meet with a community that was going through some strife. Yeah. And yes, there's no way that we could bring solutions and any attempt to would be, you know, just risking imposition and colonial imposition. Mm -hmm. So, so the task was quite different. It was to try to make visible what initiatives were already taking place in those communities, either to, to respond to so many losses that were going on, um, 
to address different hardships. And these initiatives are always happening, but they might just not be acknowledged, might not be visible, and we could convene um, you know, local rituals to make these more visible. We could document them and we could share them then between communities. So there'd be these exchanges of um, stories that we would, while we would write them down, we would actually just read them aloud in the second community. And then we'd be facilitating these exchanges between communities to do sort of what you were talking about. It's to foster and um um, any sort of embers that were just um, flickering in these communities to try to blow blow some, I think Talia Drum Butler would use that metaphor to then blow some air onto these embers so that these local initiatives would become more widely known um, and communities could make contributions to one another. So that's a, that's another key aspect that you reminded me of, Derek, which is yeah. yes, what, what is our role to be to be decentered but influential in these in these forms yes. of community or collective practice. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Once you get to, to Dulwich, um, what's your role start looking like there? Well, my first role was quite a wonderful one. So Cheryl White uh, uh, really invited me to be a, a staff writer. So to whenever we would notice initiatives that were happening in, in the field, to go and assist in writing them up. And the first, the first major assignment, though, was again in relation to prisons because there'd been a community project um, called Reclaiming Our Stories, Reclaiming Our Lives, which was when teenagers from the Aboriginal Health Council approached Dulwich Centre to respond to every Aboriginal family in the state of South Australia who'd lost a loved one to death in custody. There'd been a big inquiry to hear about that. So after that project finished, Tim Agius and others were like, well, this prisons isn't just an issue that affects Aboriginal people, actually. It affects this whole country. Yeah. So could you could you put something together about that? So Cheryl asked me to uh, put together, it was meant to be a newsletter. Cheryl was very kind because I kept writing and writing and writing and it eventually turned into a book <laughs> called Beyond the Prison, Beyond the Prison Gathering Dreams of Freedom. So it was like searching for... Um, ways beyond the prison, uh, alternative responses. And that took me to your country, Derek, for the first time. I um, ah. travelled traveled to the US and it was, it was an extraordinary trip. I, first of all, in Colorado, mm-hmm. through a friend, was able to visit a Supermax prison, uh, um, most devastatingly dehumanizing place I could ever imagine. Um, And, but even in there managed to witness the ways that the folks were um, resisting. Um, And then I went to this conference, which was a pretty strange experience where everyone stood up for the American anthem and different things that didn't usually happen in Australia. But in that, I'd also heard 
of this work that was happening in New York. And it was a non-traditional approach to criminal and social justice mm-hmm. um, by Eddie Ellis and others. And so I, I then travelled to New York and interviewed interviewed them about the work that they were doing and also met a guy called Stephen Donaldson, mm-hmm. who was one of the first people that I'd ever known who'd been raped in prison and then would speak publicly about it. He was an amazing man. And he would create small audio tapes in those days. Yeah. You probably don't never even saw any of them, Derek, but there were these audio tapes. You put cassettes <laughs> like into cassettes. tape recorders. Oh, I had, a cassette, I had cassettes. Right. <laughs> so, oh, okay, okay. Anyway, so he would make recordings on these audio cassettes yeah. uh, to support other men who'd um, and women um, who had been sexually assaulted in prisons, and he would send these via via the post across across the US. An organization called Stop Prisoner Rape. So I met these folks doing um, just both the work of Eddie Ellis in New York and Stephen Donaldson and others taking these initiatives in the face of great hardship. And my job was to write them up and share them with others. It was the most a most wonderful role, yeah. and um, yeah, so that was that was my first role. So uh, I loved it. And how long ago was that? How many years ago? I think Beyond the Prison came out in nineteen ninety five. Okay, so you've been at Dulwich for roughly, you know, at least like more Almost. than twenty five years. Uh, yep. Wow. So what are what are you really focused on there these days? Well, right at the minute, Derek, you mentioned it at the beginning. We are really looking forward to this conference that's going to take place in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Um, for quite some years, we've been learning with um, Rwandan narrative practitioners. It's a big story in itself, mm-hmm. but um, we've planned this conference for quite some years and covid got in the way. You read out that list of places where I'd been teaching recently. That needs updated because everything would be via Zoom for the last two years um, anyway. <laughs> but Rwanda, it's it's going to happen. We're going to make it to Kigali. Yeah. And it will be um, a context where Rwandan and other East African narrative practitioners share their work uh, with a with the wider wider narrative therapy community. So it's going to be great, Derek. It's going to be great. But, um, yeah, that's that's a bit of a focus. Awesome. So if uh, somebody wanted to learn more about this conference and the work that's going to come out of it, what's the best place they can go? Uh, they can just go to the Dalit Center website, dalitcenter.com.au forward slash conference. You could find out about that there. Um we're going to also um, be video recording the conference well, and then we'll have some events after the conference where we will share those. In fact, we're thinking of inviting people if they want to sponsor one uh, Rwandan to come to the conference, then that will also then enable them to come to these virtual events later on and meet the meet the practitioners and watch the videos. And yeah. so we're gonna we're gonna find ways for the international audience because of course so many people who would like to be there who aren't going to be able to be there yeah. um, that would be true even if it wasn't in the pandemic it's even yeah. more more the situation now so we'll find ways to to make sure there's many many sharings from that event yeah that's beautiful so as we're getting ready to wrap up this episode um one of the things that we talk about um on, on every episode is this idea of living a meaningful story. So we talk about that we don't just tell stories. Um, they're stories that we're living every single day of our lives. And we talk about um, this idea of meaning, that of meaning making in narrative practices. What, it, what does it mean for you, you know, whatever that looks like to live, you know, a meaningful story, a life that gives you, you know, a sense of purpose, a life that... Um, that you're living the preferred narrative, um, even if, you know, whatever situation you're in, being able to, like, kind of like what you were sharing, these these stories of, of survival, you know, how do we have a perspective on our lives and our story that empowers us and in, in telling it as, you know, Auntie Barb says, you know, in ways that make us stronger. For anyone who's out there listening, and people could be in all different uh, stages of life, 
Um, is there any, anything that you'd want to say, any, any wisdom, any, anything at all that you'd like to, to say just about what it means to, to pursue, um, a story that's, that's meaningful and life-giving to them? Oh, Derek, I think all I'd say is that, you know, it's just me as an individual talking to you today. Mm-hmm. But um, what's been by far the most meaningful for me is when I read that newsletter and it was a gender partnerships that had made it possible, this idea of partnerships, of teamwork, that it would be possible to be part of collectives to try to respond to social issues. That's why I then moved from uh, Sydney and Canberra to Adelaide to be part of these partnerships, to be part of teams, um, to be part of, you know, collaborations where yeah. we could do these things together. So that's what gives me the greatest meaning that I'm part of um, these collectives, these long-term meaningful partnerships across real differences. Um, the Just Therapy team from Aotearoa, New Zealand, talk about these partnerships, cross-cultural and cross-gender partnerships. And they're also, you know, profound friendships. Um, and they're, yeah, that's what's life-giving and meaningful to me. Yeah. And, um, yeah, of course, I've just been chatting to you as me here, but it's my engagement with those collaborations and partnerships and collectives that, that give my, my life um, purpose and meaning and joy and challenges and all of the above and all of that enthusiasm that you demonstrated at the beginning of this podcast. That's mm-hmm. what gives it to me to be part of these part of these collaborations. So yeah. Well, that's yeah. awesome. And if I can ask you as well on, on that note, you know, as you're hearing these stories and you're, you know, you're working in a lot of settings like prisons that can be just very they can be challenging, I'm sure, at times. Um, and some of the stories that you're hearing, um, what keeps you going? What what sustains you um through all that? I have a uh, friend called Dr. Abdul Ghaffar Stanigzai. He's a uh, Afghani human rights worker and medical doctor who had to flee Afghanistan and come to Australia um, because he was documenting abuses of um, not only by the Taliban, not only by the Afghan government, but also by foreign forces. Mm. And um, so he can't do the work that he once did, which was responding to these human rights abuses. He's no longer in a position to be able to do that work. Yeah. He's making a new life and doing different things, doing wonderful projects with the Alexander Center Foundation still, but he's not actually able to do that same human rights work that he was. And mm-hmm. whenever he gets to hear about how um, our team or that I'm having a chance to try and uh, respond to current social sufferings, he just always says, you are so lucky. Mm. You are just so lucky to be able to be joined and be doing this work and clearly sees this as a, well, sees it for what it is to be able there's such suffering and horrors in the world to have a yeah. chance to be able to join with others and respond in some way collaboratively that that is itself profoundly sustaining and i always just hear his voice if anyone asks me that sort of question it's like yeah. it's his voice that i hear and just says you know even if it's been a long day or there's a complex scenario or anything else he's just like you are just so lucky to be able to be doing that work. And um, wow. I agree with him. I wow. agree with him. You know, so many people have to, in situations where they can't, where they can't. So, um, wow. yeah, he's a great guy. You could have him on your program at some stage. He's doing a great program, a great project in relation to Centrelink depression, the depression that oh, wow. comes to refugees, yeah. refugees when they have to constantly engage with welfare, welfare services. And so, uh, yeah, that'd be he's awesome. A, He's a great guy too. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Derek. Yeah. I've enjoyed talking with you very much. Awesome. Well, thank you, David. It's been an honor to have you on here. And if you want to learn more about David's work, um, you can visit the Dolwich Center website, um, which we'll have a link to that in our show notes. Um, you could also read uh, one of his several books. Um, I recommend uh, retelling the stories of our lives, uh, everyday narrative therapy to draw inspiration and transform experience. If you want to begin to get familiar with some of the ideas we talked about here, uh, his book, Collective Narrative Practice, is another great book I, uh, I highly recommend. 
And yeah, um, and it was just so good to have you on here. And um, just thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for um, the the a word that came to my mind with all this, um, just as you were describing being in the prisons and then being in Dulwich and continuing to be in these spaces is is faithful. Um, just being able to continue to show up day in and day out um, and give what you have um, while remaining decentered. Um, that's, that's no easy task. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for, um, passing on that wisdom, uh, through things like the master's program. Thanks, Derek. And good luck with your podcast. A great initiative. Great initiative. I've enjoyed being with you. Thank you so much. And for everyone out there, uh, thank you so much for tuning in to the all things narrative podcast. If you want to learn more about workshops, uh, where I'm trying to do these collective narrative practices and, um, trying to figure out how to do it best um, for, for your group, maybe even who's listening. Um, just feel free to reach out at allthingsnarrative.com. And thank you again. And we'll be back next week for another exciting episode. This is your friendly narrative practitioner, Derek, signing off, saying thank you and take care.